0: Coming up next, the bookending continues to discuss teaching literature. This time, good audio quality. Hey everybody! Welcome to the Booking. My name is Nathan and I am your humble and obedient host, H&O H. The H&O H, and H&O H
1: the H and O H, the H and
0: O H himself. Sounds like some kind of a housing committee. The notorious H the notorious or a rapper, the, the notorious H and O H. And you, of course, are the what's the opposite of notorious?
1: If you're not notorious and you have a good reputation, so the reputable,
0: the reputable. <laughs> <laughs> the reputable <laughs> the reputable scholar who's a baller of reading bringing it in the house man <laughs> yes, bringing it in the his house of course it's brandon Jasmine.: cheerio cheerios pop tarts <laughs> toaster strudels cheerios pop tarts and toaster strudels the three food groups yeah as far as like if you
1: had to save three breakfast foods That are grain-based. What would they be,
0: Nathan? (laughs) Toast? Toast, okay. (laughs) Butter on that toast or just toast? Well, do I have to save butter? No. I'm only saving... Like breakfast foods are being obliterated. So anything that can be used outside of breakfast is staying. Yeah. If I'm understanding this correctly. That's correct. So butter has wide application and therefore is not being obliterated. Or is this alien race that's destroying all breakfast things destroying anything that sort of has its tendrils in breakfast so even though butter has other applications it's no 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 butter. so it's not
1: destroying eggs but it is destroying the concept of scrambled eggs fried eggs things like that but this is only grain based at this point so they haven't okay they haven't become that cruel we'll save that for the next episode it's a
0: very specific attack on <laughs> yeah
1: the american people <laughs> this is this is a great start to an episode
0: solid gold if i had to save three grain based breakfast foods Toast. Okay. Cinnamon toast crunch. Okay. Good choice so far. <laughs> One other grain based uh, bourbon for, for my breakfast. <laughs> I mean, that's what you're eating and drinking right now. <laughs> you know, we, are, we are recording a, a rare m- uh, morning podcast right now, folks.
1: I do know that Nathan usually puts bourbon in his cinnamon toast crunch instead
0: of milk. Well, Brandon, what about you? Obviously, you were setting me up because you wanted me to ask you this question. So, what? No, I don't want to answer. You're not going to answer? No, I'm not going to answer. Wow. I have to ask you to turn in your podcasting badge, your podcasting gun. All right. Here it is. (laughs) Your your sound effects badge. My keys. (laughs) The keys to your car. (laughs) Yeah. It is a podcast car, right? (laughs) Your bank account number. Yeah. Here, I'm giving you my bank account number. There you go. There. If people out there can hear different keystrokes and they know what they sound like and let's be clear every key sounds different on a keyboard it does then they know your bank account number
1: yep especially when you use a keyboard that's like the Casio keyboards that used to make a different sound effect every key you pressed <laughs> yeah i find it hilarious so that's what my computer is it does that every time i type <laughs> drives everybody else crazy
0: yeah but you find it hilarious i laugh all day long cuz i do a lot of <laughs> typing you sit down to write your poetry and stuff. It's just yep. boing. Do, do, do. Yep. Well, folks, first of all, I'd like to say you're welcome for everything that came before. Hey, you should be, thinking Hey. Bob <laughs> <laughs> well, bonds is here. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> uh, we're in good moods today, aren't we, Brandon? We're in great moods. <laughs> we don't need Jake to add a sense of
1: levity to this no. podcast.
0: All right, listen, folks, me and Brandon have so much that we need to accomplish before jake joins us again and jake has not left the podcast he's coming back he's going to be here for 1984 and for the halloween stories just calm down just calm down but there's a couple episodes that me and brandon need to get done before that like three episodes well, we yeah promised. i think it might end up being because today is different than what people are expecting right so we're not actually getting back to semiotics, which is what we were really excited to talk about. We have people who responded pretty well to those episodes. Yeah, I, people were excited about that. I want to get back to that. And it's not actually semiotics, although I do want to talk about it. In fact, semiotics. I think
1: somebody shouted out on Twitter that they really enjoyed that
0: episode, right? Yeah. <laughs> people really like So somebody said they listened to it twice. So whoa, that was nice. I hope I was right in all my facts. <laughs> <laughs> twice is nice. Well, we'll be back with more of that. But we also got a pretty nice response to our teaching literature, our very impromptu Sitting outside recording on bad technology episode mm-hmm. where we were talking about teaching last week. And yep. so I wanted to actually do a follow up to that because what we ended up doing is just talking teaching theory in general. Like, how do you be a good teacher? How do you have classroom control? And now we're going to go talk about each of my students. Now we're going to talk By about name. each of your students. By so name. tell me about Adam Ferguson. Yeah, well, that guy's a jerk. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> we all know he's going nowhere fast. That's right. It's a good thing that. The janitor industry needs people. Yeah. You think Ferguson can even be up to that level though?
1: No, I I think it's going to be more like a grocery store. He can't stop himself from doing a run-on sentence. Mm -hmm. So at least he can be somewhere where they have run-on cells on things, right?
0: (laughs) Ferguson wouldn't have to work a day in his life if he Uh, said things like that because those things are gold. That's (laughs) right.
1: Comedy clubs may be closed, but the booking is still open. <laughs>
0: yep. So if you're tired of comedy, <laughs> you can come here.
1: <laughs> and learn to just be okay with the fact that you no longer have it in your life. <laughs>
0: yep. That's exactly right. By reading great literature. No, I don't want to talk about Adam Ferguson. He's a great guy. And, you know, if he lives past 33, we'll be happy. We will. Um, anyway, folks, <laughs> you're welcome for everything that's come so far. What can I say except you're welcome?
1: <laughs> da, 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 da. <laughs> da,
0: da 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 You're welcome.
1: You're welcome. welcome. <laughs> you're welcome. welcome.
0: Right. Da, 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 da. Um we talked we talked a lot about teaching, and I called the episode teaching literature. Yeah. But then it occurred to me we didn't talk that much about actually the art of teaching literature. Oh. So you're kind of right. Yeah. We I'm, more did our broad philosophical take on. This yeah. Issue. We talked about teaching. We talked about classroom control. We talked about things like that. My first question for you, Brandon, I think last week you said you start with the basics mm-hmm. when you're teaching, you know, plot, character, theme, whatever. Can you talk more about that? Like, what are the basics? What is it that you want a student to know about literature or what, what, what are you actually trying to inculcate in them?
1: Yeah. Part of the broader goal is to teach students the art of of analysis which analysis broadly speaking is just the ability to take something look at its parts and explain and interpret them Mm -hmm. so first you want to have them learn the skill of identifying what's worth talking about and then you also want to teach them the skill of interpreting what they've seen and those are two very difficult things to actually teach a student to do once they've mastered those skills actually then they can write an essay decently but they can't do essay writing without it we always try to So teachers like think that you can teach the craft of writing an essay before you've taught them how to think Mm -hmm. in the first place, which is really difficult because essay writing is the art of thinking about something. And so, for example, even personal essays like um, E.B. White's Once Again to the Lake, Mm -hmm. that's still him analyzing and interpreting details from his past about this lake that he would go and visit.
0: Right. Even like a a David Sedaris essay, for example, it's just it's him organizing and bringing a point of view to his life. And it doesn't happen without those analytical tools.
1: Yeah. And it's identifying. And so that really is broadly speaking, what you're trying to help students do as far as analysis. And then you also want to teach them the art of appreciating what's beautiful and good. Mm-hmm. If we want to go the classical education route, but still a uh, classical terminology route, but still mm-hmm. that, that is a useful way to think about it. So those two things, you want them to be able to analyze something and interpret it because those skills, like I tell my students all the time, are broadly applicable to other subjects as well. Right. Like if they learn how to look at details and interpret them in literature, they can apply that to history, they can apply that to government, they can apply that to science. All these things that are asking them to have that same skill of analysis.
0: I think they can apply it. This, this may be overstating the case slightly. Lord willing, as they grow in wisdom and discernment, they can apply it to larger well, life s- issues
1: with debates surrounding things that are happening right now in our world, we're, we're seeing that applicability. Mm-hmm. With just a little analysis versus rhetoric, mm-hmm. you can sway yourself very different ways.
0: Right. But even things like, I think as you develop these muscles, it even helps with things like choosing your friends or choosing a church or you yes. know, the general kinds of life decisions that you have to, choosing a wife, choosing a husband. I don't want to pretend like classical education or these analytical tools are going to be the salvation of your soul, but being able to identify things, pattern recognition, like, you know, oh, this is a, this is a Wickham. Yep. I know Wickhams. This is what they look like. I'm going to stay away from this man. I'm going to be attracted to this man. These are tools that grow as, as we think and as we discern and as we practice. Exactly. And that's
1: the word, discern. And so as you ap- combine the analysis and the appreciation of what's good, into one thing that's teaching them the art of discernment, mm-hmm. right? Discerning what they should devote their time to. That's that's really what you're trying to do and help them as a teacher. Hopefully it's happening at home too, but you can't always count on that. Right. So, so anyways, you Do you find
0: that, I don't want you to throw your class or your school or anything under the bus, but do you find generally speaking in your life that you can count on it happening to some degree at home or is it really just a crapshoot? It like, just
1: depends on the family. Yep. Yeah. Not in general you can't, no. And you'd be surprised at those that you can count on and those you can't. And a lot, a lot of the times the students who are more successful are the ones that you know you can count on it. Mm-hmm. So anyways, but it does depend on the student too, the, the willingness that they have mm-hmm. to give to the work. So, but yeah, as far as teaching, um, then analysis. So let's start there. What you want to do is depending on where you're getting your students, but in, in any case, you want to know what tools do you want them to have at the very beginning of class in which to analyze what you're looking at. And so that's where the things like character. And, you know, you give them the subtypes. Is this a static character? Is this the protagonist, antagonist? Make sure that they really understand those definitions because definitional work is very essential to good thinking. You see a lot of fuzziness and and just bad logic in general coming from just a lack of definitions. It's like the basic rule. Mm-hmm. Define your terms, and it's very helpful. That's something that that's also very useful to apply to your life because, again, with the recent things that have been happening, you often see it's it's a, it's a matter of, Dishonest definitions.
0: But Brandon, literature is meant to be enjoyed and tasted and felt. You're going to bring all these, you're going <laughs> to dissect the frog and kill it, to steal E.B. White's analogy. Yeah,
1: you can dissect it. I'm not sure that that kills it, though, because often it, it actually increases your appreciation of something when you see how well it's working. Mm-hmm. So in other words, you have a beautiful clock in front of you, and you can appreciate it aesthetically for being a beautiful clock. But then also, it's pretty amazing then to go and see all the ways that the craftsmen, the work that they had to put into it to make the clock work. Right. So you can both appreciate that on a logical level and then still step back and appreciate on an aesthetic level to play that balance as a teacher.
0: Well, I think people also mistake, especially students, like when I was a lazy student, you mistake the means with the end. You mistake the process with the finished result. What I mean by that is you assume because it's difficult or boring to learn these analytic tools that it will be difficult and boring to apply them you know like oh i have to go through and decide who the dynamic characters and who the static characters are and pride and prejudice that's not fun but actually what you want is for those things to just be second nature it's why we actually don't talk a lot about those kinds of things on the show the bookening because we're assuming that for us they're second nature and for a lot of people that listen they're going to be second nature and so we fill in the gaps where we feel like we need to but it's like you you want to bring all that stuff to bear instantly which takes work and growth and learning, learning the tools. But once you have them, it's not like you're going to be sitting there bored, dissecting the frog. You're just going to look at the frog and see all kinds of beauty in the frog that you wouldn't have seen otherwise. You've been programmed to have like the Insta analysis. The Insta feeling and Insta analysis. And so even
1: artists understand that. I mean, I guarantee you take any of your favorite movies and there was lots of work at the drawing board for that story mm-hmm. or the storyboard. That's what they call it, Right. Right just deciding exactly how the story is going to work and deciding, okay, we need an antagonist. We need a dynamic character here. We need a static character here and weighing back and forth why they needed those sorts of things. And then it's the instantaneous, the movement of it that re- you really moves you as art, but still that work goes behind it. And so that one of my favorite lines that I tell MF, like students who are trying to learn to write actual poetry and stuff is that you know, the Yeats line, a line may take us hours perhaps, and yet if it does not seem a moment's thought, our stitchings and unstitchings have been not. Mm-hmm. Like anybody who's tried to write knows that that's true, because what you usually produce the first time isn't the best, and so you have to go back and work and develop that more. That means even the artists think of their work that way, in other words. You have to think about, okay, so why did he choose this word in this poem? Anyways, but having those tools of analysis for whatever you're looking at really helps to, the students find things to say about it. So with character, plot, setting, mood, and tone, those can be difficult things to talk about, but you still want to look at them. Images, symbols, the, the basic categories of literature, style. And then you have those, and then you can ask them questions. Like, okay, today we're going to analyze this character. Today we're going to look at the author's tone, and we're going to see what we can find to say about it. You know, of course, within each category, depending on the skill of your class, you have s- sub-definitions. Mm-hmm. You don't want to throw them all at the same time. You might throw the broader categories at them at once and then have days or weeks where you're developing each one. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. So like with style, that's when you get into rhetoric. That's when you can introduce the broad, like ethos, pathos, logos, Mm -hmm. logos. It's fun that I I looked those words up with my students in my rhetoric class last year and found out that most of us mispronounce those and nobody really says them the same. So what's what's right? I've always said ethos, but apparently it's ethos. Hmm. It's pathos. Not path. Not pathos, according to what we looked up, but I I've always said pathos. So I don't know. Maybe somebody out there who I think I would say ethos.
0: I don't know. Uh, yeah, it's I'm not gonna be able to anyways, recreate what I would say off the top of my head. But we all know what we're talking about when we say them.
1: Yep. And so, and then you give them the other rhetorical categories, and, and it, with the st- you can talk about the complexities of metaphor, the metonymy, synecdoche, stuff like that. Which means you need to have your terms memorized too. Mm-hmm. But so there is work that goes into that. But once they have those, then they can start looking at style and realizing okay this author's making this choice maybe they didn't make it intentionally but still the they they used a metonymy here why did they do that what's it doing for them you're going to get some of that work with fiction depending on what writer you're looking at if you have a writer who's very stylized then you'll get more useful discussions out of that you'll just have to weigh like uh teaching to kill a mockingbird you're going to get a lot more talking about narrative perspective and and character than you are about style Mm -hmm. in that book because there's just not a whole lot to say about the style right it's straightforward it's, it's straightforward and it's good mm-hmm. but you're not going to get a whole lot of rhetorical complexity
0: now style in a shakespeare sonnet on the other hand you're going to get a lot out of that mm-hmm. right well i also think style in a harry potter book you're going or ready player one you can get a decent amount out of the carelessness mm-hmm. and the moral ambiguities that a bad style introduces
1: yeah and so you can get good discussions out of stuff like that and so you just need to you have those categories because it helps students not just feel like they or having a book club Mm -hmm. where they're just going to say whatever they feel, but they actually have real categories of things that they can go to and you're guiding it. You're going to tell them, okay, today we're doing this. And you're going to use that to help discuss the craft of the book that day Mm -hmm. or the craft of the poem. And then just have those categories available. You know, you're going to get a lot more work out of metaphor imagery and stuff with a poem than you are usually out of a, uh, out of a story. Usually. Mm -hmm. I mean, we got a lot of work with the guillotine imagery in tell the two cities with a class, but And again, it just depends on that author and you help them, which helps them realize not every author tells a story the same way, but having those categories, it helps anchor class in a discussion that you can probably develop for the hour that you have those students. It also gives the students a direction. It's, it's not a useful way usually to just go into a class and say, okay, so you guys read these chapters. What do you think? Unless you're trying to get something and then you can, you're the kind of teacher that can then say, oh, that's an interesting
0: comment. Let's go with that. Eventually you have to give a direction to the discussion. So when you walk into one of these classes, you said last time, you've spent your life preparing, but for any given class, Mm -hmm. you just walk in and do it. I think you said that. It's Mm -hmm. true, whether you said it or not. What do you have in your mind? Do you have, we're going to do this chunk of literature and we're going to look for this thing? Mm -hmm. What are the prompts that you have for yourself? Well,
1: usually, yeah, usually you've had chapters or a story that you had them read or some poems. Mm -hmm. And so you go in and you... You might have something in mind, and you might even establish the goal for them that day, which I will usually do, especially with younger students. I'll say, I'll say here's what we're doing. We're going to look at these chapters. And you know, I want to I wanna examine Atticus Finch, and then I also want to look at Tom Robinson. Those mm-hmm. are two of the broader goals, but we'll see how discussion goes.
0: You might establish it that way. And if you, you know, when you say that, do <clears throat> you in your mind have an angle, like we're going to talk about static characters, or we're going to talk about this kind of metaphor, or Yeah, kind of what emerges in discussion?
1: A little bit of what emerges, because you want to let them, especially at the level of AP, help guide it some, because mm-hmm. you're trying to get them to where they can say interesting things. Right. But you, you want to have some goals in mind in case you want to have something you want to say about Atticus Finch. And so brought, I brought him up last week with my students, and I'm saying, so, so I will say something like, I want to talk about Atticus Finch as a character, and I want to talk largely about the complexity of how Harper Lee presents him. And also the theme of fatherhood that comes up through him that's just rampant
0: throughout this story. Right. Those are my goals. And then I'll say, but let's see what you guys have as observations mm-hmm. about Atticus. What I find is having something <laughs> like that, like, for example, example with this podcast we're recording right now, I'll be a little meta. I had 10 questions that I wrote down yesterday, just as I went about my day, I thought of 10 questions. I have no idea what they are. I'm not looking at them. I probably won't look at them because our conversation is going now and it's going fine. But. It gives me confidence to lead the conversation right yeah. now because I know that they're there, not because I have a goal in mind, but because I know that I could have a goal in mind if I needed to. Um, yeah.
1: What you don't want to do, and you just have to know your teaching style, is if you're the kind that needs to have like a, a set plan in front of you, then you need to have that. Because what you don't want is to just let the class go whatever direction without you leading it. You want to be able to step in at some point and say, okay, that's good for now on that. Maybe we'll come back to that later, but let's move on. Or you want to be able to kind of nurture that conversation and develop and grow it. But you have to have that sense about you.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I don't know how to say it really, but if you just don't, if you don't have that natural just ability mm-hmm. to just kind of guide the conversation and know where you want it, and I don't, know, I don't know how to develop it. It's more like an instinct that some people have, but it doesn't mean you have to have it to be a teacher. No, it just means you have to
0: do more prep work. Yeah,
1: then you might have to do prep work, and that's fine, but you just need to know that about you. Mm-hmm. And then it is it is more work for you to teach, but that's fine.
0: Well, also, it just depends on where you're at in life. Um, one of the reasons you're able to ad-lib a lot of this stuff is because, like I said earlier, you've spent your life preparing. Yeah. So you have a lot of handles and go-tos and things in your head that other people might not have, yeah. which is which is just some people are going to have more, some people are going to have less, some people...
1: Yeah, and so that's where you want those categories, because they help you too. Mm-hmm. If you're getting clogged up in Atticus Finch and you, your students don't know where to go, you'll you say, okay, well, let's look at the places where he appears, the settings that she has him in. Why do these places matter? You might say, okay, what broader themes come out through Atticus Finch? Why do those matter? You might say, how does she present him like, at, through his dialogue? Why does that matter? And stuff like that. And then, you know, you'll begin to get some discussion out of that. And then if you're still spinning your wheels, be willing to move on.
0: Do you personally ever ask questions that you don't know the answer to or go out on a limb exploring things? Oh, that... yeah, all the time. And I'll, and
1: I'll tell the students things like that. I'll be like, you know, I don't necessarily have an answer to this. We're just going to kind of develop this as we go.
0: And uh, if you're going to do that, be willing. Do to... you get lost in the weeds sometimes? Like, does, it, does, does the branch fall when you...
1: Yeah, sometimes it will. You have to be okay with that. Just as long as students realize that you're in control of the conversation and you're letting them participate, but you're not just letting things... Go that you're not a direction you don't want it to go, right? In other words, if you're intentional
0: about things, and I think they're usually okay with that, right? You can you can intentionally fail or intentionally go out on a limb, and everybody can be comfortable with it. Especially if you're willing to step back and
1: say, "Okay, guys, you know we didn't really get much out of that." But what you do see now is that what I keep telling you is that this. In the, I'm imagining talking to the students here. Mm -hmm. What I tell you guys is that part of the difficulty of coming up with a thesis statement is doing the thinking beforehand. Where you can actually have an interesting, unobvious thesis statement, mm. as opposed to just what's obvious and boring. Right. And so by going down that rabbit trail, we proved that that's not going to work, but at least we're doing the thinking necessary yeah. to get us to something interesting.
0: It's interesting doing that work as a teacher and being able to authoritatively <laughs> go out on a limb and then authoritatively have the limb break. Yeah. There's a way, I, I think a lot of people make the mistake, I've certainly watched teachers and as a teacher, I've done this before. Of pr- trying to pretend like the limb didn't break, trying to pretend like I knew we were going there all along, and yeah. actually, I had a master plan, and it's great, and it's in c- it's like kids smell the garbage, yeah, and that's where a m- million miles away you can't get away with that. you have to cop to it, and then there's a weak the opposite extreme is there's a weak way to cop to it that makes them feel like you were out of control and you didn't know what you were doing. Yeah. I mean, if you step back and you get embarrassed and you start mumbling and stuff, then mm-hmm. they're not going to trust you much. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Right, so. There's a way to, to intentionally say, even, even if they ask you a question you don't know the answer to, there's just a way to handle that that says, we're all in process and I'm the king of the process. Yeah, doesn't mean I'm the king of all knowledge and all reasoning. It just means I'm in charge of yeah. the process.
1: And you want them to feel that. Mm-hmm. And so that's even part of what we talked about last time with classroom management. You just want them to always feel like you're in control. You can have a fun classroom, right? but still be the one in charge.
0: Right. But, that, but kids love that when you are able to have the humility and guts and the right mix of everything to be able to process in real time. When they well, see you figuring things out, that, they can get really excited. That can be some of the most fun that kids have is watching.
1: Exactly. And you want to get excited by the points they make too, not just excited by the points you want to make. Mm-hmm. Like you want to, sh- you want to show them that you are. they're applying these skills that you've taught them of analysis and interpretation. Those are So just as a step back really fast for teachers, those are two of the most important things you keep in mind is analysis is great, but then you also have to interpret it, mm-hmm. right? And the question I always tell my students, the most important question of analysis is why? So you, you pointed out this really interesting fact. Now let's understand why that matters. Hopefully there's a teacher out there that finds that useful, that you want to teach them. Here's analysis, especially for high school. Here's interpretation. And mm-hmm. the interpretive question is why.
0: Mary is a static character in Pride and Prejudice. We have established she does not change from the beginning to end. Why did Jane Austen do that? And that's the only way you're going to get to a thesis statement. Mm-hmm.
1: Students always find that to be the most challenging thing is how do I get to a thesis statement? Well, you have to ask yourself the question why. Because thesis statements in the end have to matter. They have to have an argument behind them. And so they need, they have to demand evidence and proof. Good example of that was last year of the question we were talking about going out on a limb. Here we have the end of To Kill a Mockingbird. What is Harper Lee actually trying to say? Like what's going on with Atticus Finch and his refusal to see that it was Boo at the end? Mm -hmm. What's going on with the sheriff being the one that actually tells Atticus, we just need to lie about this.
0: There's a weird sudden moral weakness. Yeah, like what in the world's going on with Rigidity on Atticus' and I said, part. And I made the
1: point, I said, guys, I don't actually have an answer. I want you guys to help me just look at the details and try to figure out what we think is a class, if we can come up with a thesis statement about what's happening here. And I th- they actually did a good work on that. Their observation was, well, in the end, it's um, the sheriff rep- representing the law. Mm-hmm. He's the one. So it's not, in other words overturning authority there at the end of the story it's actually having the authority realize that sometimes its authority has to adapt and change based on who is the one having the law come down on them Mm -hmm. that's interesting enough i don't know if it's true but it's still interesting and there's evidence there for it Mm -hmm. because it's not atticus who sees it it's the sheriff who's even above atticus atticus is actually just saying we need to apply the law yeah but the guy who actually represents applying the law which Mm -hmm. is the sheriff is the one who's pushing. And so that, that that's interesting. You're thinking about character. You're thinking about their position in the story. You're thinking about others in relation to them because you have to think about relations within stories. And then you're also thinking about uh,
0: their dialogue, things like that. There's evidence to back it up. You know, what's, you know what actually is really interesting that I just thought of? This is off the point of teaching literature and onto the point of To Kill a Mockingbird. She removes a certain kind of icky moral culpability from Atticus by not having him do that. If you wrote the scene so that the sheriff was the guy that was like the authoritarian just wants to apply the law across the board. And then Atticus talks him into not, you wouldn't know how to feel about Atticus in that moment and whether he was doing the right thing. Yeah. It's actually the only way to write the scene.
1: Yeah. no, It was brilliant. It's brilliant. It's well done. The scene
0: doesn't work the other way.
1: No, it doesn't. And it, and it matters that it's the sheriff doing it too. Mm -hmm. So yeah, a lot of the ways she chooses to tell that scene matter. And so that's kind of what you're trying to help students see. You know, we're interpreting that through the details. And then as far as then appreciation, you know, once you've looked at all the things like that, then you can also take a step back and you can just, you want to occasionally have moments where you just will read things and you'll acknowledge the feeling that's coming out in them. Mm -hmm. So there's the Boo Radley scene uh, where Scout is remembering Boo or thinking about Boo and him sitting on his porch and Mm -hmm. all the things that he observed. That's a pretty moving scene. You want to take the details and also interpretation, like when you're talking about his fatherhood compared to Mayella's father, those things, you can get a lot of emotion out of that too and help them appreciate the broader things that are happening in the story. So I guess what I'm trying to say there is as far as then moving away from just the vivisection of the Mm -hmm. story to actually appreciating it, they'll appreciate
0: it if they see you appreciating it Mm -hmm. and if you're helping them see what they should be appreciating. So Brandon's job in this moment in the classroom is to communicate appreciation for To Kill a Mockingbird. Well, what, what exactly does that look like? I mean, is it just you going, oh man, isn't this sad? Isn't this, what?" like, what do you do? What are the tools to communicate appreciation? Well, one, you can communicate
1: it by just appreciating the, well, the way the story is told and then kind of in your tone of voice and your enthusiasm for it. But also then taking those interpretations and then just applying them to them, like, you know, talking about why this matters to them Mm -hmm. and what sort of relationship this has to them. Like all of them have fathers, all of them have homes where Mm -hmm. there's things like that, that, you know, this matters for them. They should really, they should feel this. And then also just occasionally, if you think something's beautiful, just stopping and saying, hey, that's just absolutely beautiful. Mm -hmm. Like if I'm reading poetry with them sometimes, I'll do that. And then I might point out why it is. Sometimes I might just let it linger. Right. But having those, so there's just a variety of tools. You can either develop it to help it obvious why it applies to them, or you can just, like you said, yeah, sometimes just literally just say, man, that's
0: wonderful. Yeah. Well, I think this is what I was getting at, what we were getting at last week. I didn't feel, I said something last week that I didn't feel like I articulated very well, which is... The idea of making associations, and I think associations are very helpful for appreciation. The more threads you can tie together in terms of how does this relate to someone's life? How does this relate to a movie that we all like? How does this relate to culture? How does this relate to pop culture? How does this relate to, relate to your mommy issues, to your daddy issues? How did this, You you talked about your professor telling a story of being under the stars with his yeah. wife or something like that something that was very moving and meaningful to him that he tied it to, yep. and suddenly it became moving and meaningful to you yep. simply because he gave an analogy from his life that...
1: Yeah, and then actually that is one of the best ways to do it. So when you're reading poetry, or reading To Kill a Mockingbird, you'll just stop and you'll say things like, I mean, how many of you guys can sympathize with what's happening here? Mm-hmm. You have things in your life, and you might tell a story, something like that, but you really want, it, you really want them to see how literature how it works and why through sympathy and empathy, all those things, why literature works as art Mm -hmm. aesthetically as it does. So there's just the pleasure of beautiful words too, like with poetry, but also then you'll get like the reason a sonnet works is because everybody can imagine saying that sonnet to their beloved. Right. And you have to
0: bring it down to earth. And the way that you bring it down to earth is to say, well, this is a story of when I was dating my wife and I felt like she was fairer than a summer day or Or the Langston Hughes poem that I love, the The, um, Come Let Us Roam the Nights Together singing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And
1: even if your wife isn't going to appreciate it, it still makes you feel. All
0: right, folks, here's an association for you. (laughs) Yeah. I asked my wife to marry me, and she said yes. And I texted Brandon and said, we're engaged. And And Brandon said, you should read her some poetry. And then he texted. I said, what should I read her? And he said, read her that Langston Hughes poem. So I did. Two. Crickets to to, to no acclaim to no love more to no to Hughes. yeah yeah more like langston booze yeah. booze from meredith oh, and well. and I and uh, so I broke off the engagement and I'm and Nathan's still single uh, single <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no I married her anyway <laughs> she's she's pretty cute even if she doesn't like langston Hughes and well and something that Brandon is actually really good at you'll notice in the uh, the bookening I've done this with Brandon for now 5 years is he ties things to movies and pop culture just uh, you you remember that rap song or that movie, you can say that's gauche. You can say that's not what a truly great literature would do, but it always really helps me. Like, oh yeah. This highfalutin thing and this highfalutin piece of literature is actually just like the thing that the Marvel guys did. Like I mean, I'm sorry, but most of us aren't that much smarter than that. And I mean,
1: in the end, this is our this is one of our soapboxes on the bookending, but the things we think of as high literature didn't start off as high literature in the first place. We didn't really have that category, and we'll talk more about it when we get into lit and crit, right? Which is next week. Um, but like the way that we think about T.S. Eliot and Ernest Hemingway, they kind of created that ivory tower pristineness for themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, before that, I mean, it was Dickens with his hands dirty and just storytelling and just having a good time, and
0: Shakespeare. We didn't. Nobody thought of Shakespeare that way. Nobody thought of Dickens that way. Nobody. So I mean, it's just. Well, I've been reading Middlebarch, which yeah. is a giant. Tome of a novel. It's kind of difficult by today's standards. But you can tell a lot of what actually makes it difficult is George Eliot's desire to entertain because she'll be like, I'm going to do a parody of this thing about provincial life in this chapter, and it's going to be 40 pages. And then I'm going to write an auction scene, not because it matters to the plot, but because I think people will laugh at this. And so it's so full of incident and full of stuff. It becomes kind of overwhelming and challenging now. But I think all that stuff is basically there because George Eliot's showing off and trying to- Just trying to entertain. entertain, yeah. So we'll also, I wanna talk a little bit more about inculcating love, particularly of style. We've had people ask us over the years, like you guys said that this book had good style, this book had bad style. I just don't hear it. I just don't see it. I just don't care. Functionally, it doesn't matter to my understanding of the story. And Brandon has a sneer on his face, folks. You should see this. He doesn't, but- People do feel that way. Kids do feel that way. How do you make someone understand music? I mean, how do you how do you get that into somebody? Well,
1: I know the way that Dr. Fairchild did it for me was just by reading it and showing you how much he loved it, Mm -hmm. and then pointing out ways that it works and why it's working the way it does. So again, it's that balance of analysis versus just appreciating it. And so, just based on his love of things, now I have deep love of certain styles of poetry just that come from him. Mm -hmm. And you have to own that responsibility because I have students now I've heard from parents who say like their students now have tastes that were definitely shaped by my literature class Mm -hmm. where they're like like there was a discussion about Hawthorne that Mm -hmm. came up and one of the students said oh I can't believe that you like Hawthorne or something like that (laughs) (laughs)
0: yeah that's me for sure yeah but yeah (laughs) Uh, yeah, I stand by it. But. <laughs> Not making snobs out of your students is another topic, I guess. Well, and students going to have to balance
1: that themselves because you still have to be able to make judgment claims. And so well, well and, I, I remember the discussion that came up and it was just like, okay, here's Hawthorne versus let's take Melville. The difference in their style is Melville can be purple, but really he's just more stately and clean with his style in mm-hmm. a way that Melville and Hawthorne's very purple and bringing in unnecessary just words and feelings and adjectives and things that don't really add to it. it There's just, just a lot of, of ornamentation and ornamentation yeah. that really gets in the way. Mm-hmm. And that was the discussion we had. And so I'm like, yeah, so who do I like Hawthorne as a stylist? Not really. Right. I, I think that he, I wish that he was better. Yeah. And so small doses I yeah. would, is my opinion on that. But you do, you'd point out, you look at the style and you just look at a sentence or a paragraph and maybe compare it to something else you've read. Like you, maybe you've read Hemingway and mm-hmm. it's unfair to compare Hawthorne to Hemingway. Sure. You still look at him and you say, okay, Hemingway's clean, sometimes to a fault, mm-hmm. but usually not to a fault. Right. Usually not. But here's Hawthorne. Let's look at the difference. Oh, yeah. Hawthorne's using all these words that are complicated and aren't really adding to the story and are just kind of digressions. And then that's what we, and then you'd help him understand what do we mean by purple prose, stuff mm-hmm. like that. Things that are just more directed at getting you to feel a certain way as opposed to adding to the story, right? And right. And you're like, well, that's not always bad, but you see how Hawthorne is doing it here, how this is unnecessary. What would happen if we cut some of that stuff out? Right. And so you just actually just look at the literal words and things that are being used and apply the rules of grammar and
0: mm. analysis to them. And Well, I think a lot of it is about doing all that by removing the notion of inevitability from people's heads everybody you know a kid just comes to a text like to be or not to be and it's just there it's an artifact it feels like a thing that's stood for hundreds of years It, in fact has stood for hundreds of years but if you start to just ask a simple question like well he could have said to be or not you know it's like uh eb white at the in his little essay at the end of elements of style talking about these are the times that try men's souls and then he says let's look at the the alternatives these are trying times comma soul wise <laughs> you know he, he just writes all the these are times that are trying to souls of men he writes all the alternatives and suddenly the good one stands out simply because you see it wasn't inevitable he had to reject 20 alternate versions and so uh, helping them see that helping them understand that we're very image and picture
1: driven even with language mm-hmm. and so those sorts of images really matter one, reason, one of the reasons C.S. Lewis is such a master of the essay is he knows, and E.B. White, too, is they know the little images that are going to move you. Then mm-hmm. the way to glory, the, sandca- the, the mud pies and sandcastles image, or the, as surely as the tide, the, the boats are lifted by the tide or whatever mm-hmm. he says there. And, you know, E.B. White with the images that you get from any of his essays. But then also that we're very musically driven, too, that rhythms and pulses matter. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you just really fascinating to study that like one of the reasons you know circadian rhythms but the beat of the heart the beat of your blood in your ear all these things they just really affect the way we see the world mm-hmm. and so that pulse and rhythm and language matters every language has rhythm and pulse i don't know why i'm saying rhythm and pulse is that they're different every rhythm language
0: and pulse, yeah. rhythm and pulse.
1: every language has a pulse it has mm-hmm. a heartbeat and so being intentional about that matters and we like the authors who give ear to that and so mm-hmm and so helping them see that. And then, you know, you can you can talk about antipests and iams and stuff like that with the way that the rhythms that come into language and help them take that apart. But then in the end, they're only going to really appreciate it if you read it for them in a way that shows them how to appreciate it. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd have to take the fact that you're the teacher and if you feel weak in something, go and educate yourself. So for example, I'm teaching a little bit of history this year. So one of the things I did was I, as I've been working and driving, I've listened to a book on the middle ages on tape and it was really fun and uh, but it's something i needed to do and we wasn't taking any time out of my day because I was just listening as I did things.
0: Yeah, it kind of feels like, I mean, I know people have different jobs in different life situations, but in between Google and Wikipedia and Audible and Hoopla and all that stuff, there's so many resources. You carry the world's information in your pocket. You don't really have an excuse not to brush up on certain things.
1: Yeah. And as a teacher, hopefully you're a teacher because you also yourself are curious and want to develop in knowledge and your students will help you and you need to be, I think what you said earlier about having some humility in the classroom, mm-hmm. you need to be Aware, A, when you've said something wrong and know how to handle that and step back from it mm-hmm. and not let it ruin you.
0: <laughs> how do you do that? Uh, well, for
1: one, if you've had it, you'll either say, oh man, like I, I, I didn't mean to say that. Sorry guys, this is what I meant. But you have to own it. Like you mm-hmm. said, the students are going to be aware of, uh, they, they know you're a human mm-hmm. and they're okay with the fact that you're going to make a mistake here and there if you at least own it. Like my son has, a, has had a teacher who was unwilling to do that. Right. And he, they, they know, right? She's, she's, they say things all the time that are wrong and they're just try to s- stand by them or something like that. Or Jake's famous story about the banana, mm, right? Banana. Yeah. So just have some humility about yourself. And if you accidentally say, you know, I'm trying to remember what it was last year. There was some word that I misused mm-hmm. and was just continually misused it throughout a class because I just wasn't paying attention. Mm-hmm. And then one student raised her hand and said- That word, I think it doesn't mean what you think it means, basically. I'm like- I think it's plot, not plot. Yeah. I'm like, oh, wow. You're actually right. Mm -hmm. Thank you. (laughs) So, and then you're like, oh, well, you know, you just make a little joke about it and move on and they're Mm going to not care. But if you either like, if like, if you just turn red and just start sweating and crying or something, (laughs) or if you get mad, like, how dare you? Right. So-
0: Yeah, that's been a difficult lesson for me. I mean, I am essentially an autodidact, which means I'm incredibly insecure about- everything that I know. And so even though I did just say the sentence, I am essentially an autodid. Who <laughs> <laughs> are you there? <laughs> well, <laughs> I am essentially Superman. Yeah, with so, my brain. I don't know why anyone would need to be insecure who said a sentence like that. But um, actually, I think someone says a sentence like that needs to be very insecure. <laughs> but I've had to learn to just own my mistakes because A, your students your they'll eat you alive if mm. if you don't if you try and pretend li- or if you just get flustered and red-faced it's like no we're all human we all make mistakes we all have verbal slip-ups where we say i mean what is, what is the famous uh bible what, what is it called the bible where they misprinted it and said thou shalt shalt oh, yeah. adultery or the, devil's like, the devil's bible right yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's like, things like that happen you <laughs> All the most famous parts that have been cut out of the bookening that you've never heard has been parts where someone's accidentally made it sound like fornication's great or, yeah. <laughs> you know, the villain is the good guy or. So, yeah. And then I think it frees the students up
1: to realize that when they make a mistake, it's not the end of the world. Mm-hmm. Like you don't want to belittle them unless you have a particular goal with belittling them. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yeah. It depends
1: on the student, there's, in other words. But still, it helps them to realize that. Thinking and analyzing things—it's a process of mm-hmm. making mistakes. Yeah.
0: So that's basically a yeah.
1: definition. Yeah. So there. So that's that's one way to do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So
0: do you feel this is kind of a weird, maybe philosophical question? Do you think that your job as a teacher is essentially to elevate the kids or to uh, what's the opposite of elevate to destroy them? <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, Brandon. Do you think that the <laughs> job of a teacher is to elevate the kids or to destroy them? To are you bringing the material down or are you bringing the kids up?
1: Oh, yeah. I always want to bring the kids up. I don't usually... I mean, I guess le-
0: that's obvious, but...
1: No, but f- so for example, one thing I don't do in my classrooms is try to make the students feel that they're smarter than they are. Mm-hmm. Usually I have the opposite goal early in the semester. So like one, the way that I've approached AP Lit so far is I'll come in and I just... For one, it helps establish your authority. If you can do this, you start with the Greeks and you just move all the way through literary history. It usually Mm -hmm. takes about two school days. And you say, Okay, I want to see how much you guys know. And then you just go piece by piece and they begin to realize that they don't know that much. Mm -hmm. And it kind of de elevates them because it helps, you know, realize that they need to realize that there's a lot they need to learn and that there's a process. And then you say, Okay, That's we know now what you don't know. That's great. Knowing what you don't know is part of the challenge. Now let's start filling the gaps. And then you have a process. So like, for example, I have, I assign each of them a Friday where they have to give a presentation on a period of history, literary history. And that helps start to develop their knowledge like that. And then they have to take notes and respond to their fellow presenters on those days. Yes, you do want to bring them down only to show them where you're headed. Right. And so you say, here's the goal. And so last year, uh, it became a mantra of our class that the goal was to get them to level zero. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so in other words, you know, you guys are at level 10 right now. We're going to get to level zero and mm-hmm. they really latched, latched onto that. Like let's go, let's do it. And so as long as they realize that they, there's a reason they should be elevated. There's mm-hmm. a reason that they should want that goal. And then you're going to get them there. You don't want to then like kick them and say, okay, that's what you don't know. And you're too stupid to know it now. Mm-hmm. You, you dumb idiots.
0: <laughs> You'll never be what I am. <laughs> Do you believe that there's kids who are just math kids? I mean, are, are there people that just don't have an ear for literature, just aren't not going to care? They need to get a C in the class. But besides that, you love them and you respect them, but there's no hope for them. Um, no,
1: I think that there are math kids, but I think that they can still be taught to love literature. And I've actually had students who have said to their parents that, well, you know, I'd never really liked literature until now, mm-hmm. you know that I never, I didn't like books or appreciate literature, but now I kind of do. I never thought I'd like to read. I think that there's always that hope for students, for them to at least appreciate it. I don't think that there's outside of rare cases and it's often it's just stubbornness that that's actually true. I do think there are people that are gifted def- different ways, mm-hmm. but I still don't think that they can be taught to appreciate what it is that's good about poetry.
0: What do you do in terms of developing the kids who are gifted
1: Um, You set standards for them and you expect them to help lead discussion in class, and you have higher uh, goals for them in their writing and stuff like that. And you really encourage them when they say something good to continue. There are responsibilities and weights that you can give to students within a classroom just by, like, if you look at them or if you call on them, that they know that you're expecting more of that student. And yeah, there's a bit of hierarchy in the classroom, but that's Mm -hmm. fine. I think the students who usually don't want to talk are fine with that in the first place. So. And you also have to know how to silence the students that often want to talk even when they don't have anything to say, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which is just a balancing act. And so like, do you read in the classroom? We would read some. You, I would often find that we would read more poetry than anything because just learning poetry is often meant to be read out loud and that's helpful. That's another way to help appre- learn, ha- have them learn appreciation is just by reading poetry with them because poetry really is a dead art and has died in many ways. Even those who call themselves poets today aren't necessarily poets. So they're just prose writers with broken syntax. <laughs> I don't know.
0: <laughs> so just prose writers with broken syntax. Take that, Rupi Carr and Maya Angelou.
1: And then I guess, yeah, the last thing is, you know, a part of application to their life is you do want to be pushing towards discernment mm-hmm. and teaching them that. And so even like with, being careful with how you approach a book, what you read in the classroom. If you do read something that's a bit dicey, you have a purpose behind it. Like, so we read um, Banana Fish, a good, It's a Good Day for Banana Fish mm-hmm. by Salinger. Yeah. There's some stuff that's on the edge, even with To Kill a Mockingbird, there's some stuff that's on the edge. Right. And just guiding them through that carefully because the end goal really is with literature to teach them to be discerning, more discerning in their lives pushing them, especially with today's kids, to understand that what you consume as art can affect you.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. We say it on the booketing all the time, but everybody assumes they can just take this stuff in and it won't affect them. And it's insane. And so you have to have that as a broader vision and goal for yourself as a teacher as well. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with the fact that most literature is above students' heads? I mean, in other words, if you're a high school student, certainly a high school student in a dopey Christian school, not that. We have. There's such a thing as a dopey Christian school. Most of the life experience that these great novels and poems are talking about is actually ahead of them. I mean, maybe Romeo and Juliet they can get because they've been in puppy love, but Mm -hmm. they're they're not going to understand Anna Karenina. They're not. I'm thinking of myself here because I read so many of these. But you know, I such a. I think both of us were prodigious uh, readers and Mm -hmm. you know autodidacts in high school, and it's like you end up reading. Things that are way above you. Things that are way above you. I read Crime and Punishment when I was about 14. And it's like, what did I get about out of that? Besides there was some crime and eventually some punishment.
1: You have to find the things that you can talk to them about that do resonate with who they are. And then you also have to help them appreciate the things that are beyond their experience too. Mm -hmm. One way you do that is just tell them, you know, literature. So I read that section by Lewis from, oh, I forget which, I think it might be the discarded image. Where he talks about, you know, one of the reasons we read literature is because it gives us windows mm-hmm. to other places. It gives us experiences that we don't have. Right. And so you tell them that, you know, this will be alien to you guys, but this is part of the reason we read these things. Is, and that's part of the reason discernment matters is because it should matter what you're giving yourself access to as far as a new experience. That's why you don't read porn. Mm-hmm. Acknowledging that. Teaching them that and then also finding those places you know that will mean something to them and then that's why you do want to open up for discussion, you know, what are they finding interesting. And then also again, like I said, having that goal from the beginning of with your class that you have expectations that are beyond them, but they can get there. And so if they know that, then they'll realize, like when we read Barn Burning by Faulkner, the style is usually gets in the way of immediate understanding. But if you go through a paragraph slowly with them and you say this is how it's working. Right, this is the mind of a little boy mixed with this weird King James theatricality of William Faulkner, but that's how his style works. And then you show them how that works, and then they usually can engage more with the story too. So, in other words, you understand that there are limitations
0: to their appreciation, and you try to find out what those are, and then help them take baby steps towards overcoming it. Do you find this is another kind of random question? Do you find that you end up teaching material that you don't like? You know, novels that (laughs) you think aren't as good. And if so, how do you handle that? Yeah, depending on where you're at, you're going to have to. And
1: um, it's like I had to read the Scarlet Letter with some students. I'm not crazy about Hawthorne. You're
0: not crazy about Hawthorne. I'm not crazy
1: about him. But you still, you find ways to still do some of the same work. You'll find that you actually appreciate him more than you think. My two-sentence review
0: of Scarlet Letter, just fine.
1: And so, yeah, that's what it is. It's just fine. And you'll still find those ways to access it, like talking about character, talking about style, talking about image that still give them stuff to do, but also take the opportunity to kind of share with them as depending on what, who the class is, why you don't like it. Mm-hmm. So like we had a discussion with a class last year, why I'm not overly crazy about Jane Eyre. Mm-hmm. And I did it intentionally with one student in mind and it actually ended up being very
0: helpful for her. Are you running the danger there that you'll make them just despise the subject? What if you're attacking what they love? Well, if you're saying Jane Eyre's stupid, are they going to extrapolate from that, that this class is stupid? Based, you know, like, in other words, we're reading one of the greats and the teacher's saying it's not that great. So where, oh, where am I supposed no, to play my
1: feet? Because then you want to make sure you point out to them why you're still reading it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, You're not
0: well, I well, I wish we weren't reading this.
1: Right.
0: <laughs> I <laughs> wish we weren't reading this.
1: And then they'd be like, well, then why are we reading this? Yeah, you're mm-hmm. right. You know, instead, you, as everybody knows, I don't hate Jane Eyre. Mm-hmm. We like Jane Eyre quite a bit yeah i was just pointing out like towards the end like why this story begins to fall apart with yeah. the love triangle there at the end so with uh so that that that's more the discernment mm-hmm. coming in
0: and so you set Jane and i on fire you threw it in the trash can you got wide saragossa sea or whatever that thing yeah. is called said we're gonna read this instead that's right that's right show us the true story of mrs rochester that's the first mrs right. rochester and so that's what we did
1: good Yeah. No, I mean, if you're reading something in class that you just have no use or value for at all, I don't know why you would be doing Mm. that necessarily. Yeah. But (laughs) um,
0: (laughs) if you do, you still have to have an angle. Like you have to convince the students there's a reason. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. and Well, that's just one of the lines you got to walk teaching discernment, teaching part of teaching discernment is. You got to be able to discern some bad stuff, which means you've got to take some bad stuff in. And where do you draw the line? Well, yep. that's up to you, dear teacher, dear that's father, right. dear mother, dear pastor. <laughs> yep. All right, everybody. We're going to read Fifty Shades of Grey. Sweet. <laughs> Tell me why it's bad. <laughs> Don't do that.
1: Yeah. No, I would not advise that. You wouldn't advise that? I would not advise reading Fifty Shades of Grey or Twilight or anything like
0: mm-hmm. that. Brennan just basically has them read Twilight books on the one hand and then like critical theory. That's right.
1: Lukacs. stuff we like never that. read the book themselves we only
0: read like most obscure critics take on
1: them mm-hmm. so
0: the worst literature teacher i ever had we walked in on him one day quickly going through the cliff notes for return of the king <laughs> hey <laughs> J.R. tolkien's return of the king i mean it's a long book <laughs> <laughs> it is <laughs> it is It is a long book. Actually, we talked him into, he was a bad teacher. The movie, this is people, this will date me. People, the movie Return of the King was coming out this year. That was my last year of high school. So if you do the math, I graduated from high school 17 years ago, I guess. Although I didn't actually graduate. I dropped out and graduated later. But we said, hey, the movie's coming out. So we should return read Return of the King. And he was like, okay, I I guess that's fine. I'd, I'd rather be ogling the girls while they play volleyball anyway. He didn't actually say, to say that, but that's what we all kind of thought. So we read Richmond the King, and he didn't. Isn't that a beautiful story? That's a wonderful story. That's a great teacher right there. <laughs> yeah.
1: So as little work as you can possibly put into teaching, as little commitment to those students as you possibly can give, mm-hmm. that, is, that is teaching. And right if you here.
0: can give off some, some pervy vibes towards the students. Then Even better. The piece de resistance. <laughs> <laughs> it's a perfect, it's a perfect. <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> if I had the choice between setting myself on fire and stuffing my arm down a garbage disposal or going back to high school. Don't uh, know what you'd do. I think I'd go back to high school, but it'd be close. I had a pretty good high school experience, so <laughs> I'd go back to high school. <laughs> but not all of us have the charmed educational life that Brandon has had. Nope. Some of us are, say it with me, folks, essentially autodidacts. <laughs> Oh, brother. I love Brandon, and I love our donors and our patrons. Sweet. So let's shout them out. I will shout. Um, Brandon, why don't you say uh-huh. whether you think this, this person is- An autodidact? An autodidact. What's the opposite? A didact? Is, is, is a didact just a, someone who's not autodidact? I guess. A manual didact? I mean, yeah, okay. I'll say auto or manual. Oh, yeah, auto or manual. But I'm thinking of cars now. Right. <laughs> so auto, manual- or electric. Okay. Not that those are the three categories of cars. To become a patron of The Bookening, go to patreon.com forward slash The Bookening. I'd really love to get to King Arthur sometime soon, which when we get to 1500 a month, we will do. Are we done with Tolkien? Uh, yeah, we're basically done with Tolkien, I think. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. Maybe, maybe we'll, I don't know. Who knows? You know, maybe we'll. We're talk, done with Tolkien. Yeah, I think, I think we're done with Tolkien. Um, forever. Forever. <laughs> <laughs> I only read the cliff notes anyways. Yeah, maybe behind the paywall we'll talk about the Salmonarian and mm-hmm. uh, farmer Giles of Ham. Maybe we could do just a little Tolkien roundup because that would be fun. But mm-hmm. on the other hand, mm-hmm. I think we were ready to do the things. Tolkien. Yeah. So Patreon.com forward slash the bookening. We could use your support. I understand times are tough out there with the covid and all of that things have slowed down a little bit on the fundraising side of things for everybody and for us but so if you could support us right now that'd be great and you could get us to five dollars a month yeah five dollars a month price a of cup of coffee a month won't give you a shout out no ten dollars a month that's two cups of coffee a month that you won't buy but you know just just think about the things that but you get me telling you whether or not you're auto manual or electric right electric didact <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's like a robot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right. Well, let's shout out our patrons. Uh-huh. Once again, if you want to be part of this club or you want to support us in other ways, go to patreon.com forward slash the You want to see great behind the scenes videos. You want to see, get t-shirts, get books, get all kinds of things. Patreon.com forward slash the bookening. Robert and Rhonda, the lovebirds, Brandon. Uh, um, manual. The Artful Anthony Dodger. Auto. Little Anthony's Cigar Store. Electric. Absolutely electric. The Immortal Chelsea E. Auto. Jimmy Beam and Little Annie Oakley. Manual. Lily of the Valley. Manual. Andrew and Esther the Lovebirds. Manual. <laughs> the Keith Master. Electric. David's Moneyman Trucking. Diesel. John and Jill and Little Baby Max. Manual. Jane and Katie who are cold and love cheese and also see as Lewis including Till We Have Faces. Auto. Fairy Princess of Wonder and Happiness Mother Beth. Auto. Consul Prime Adam. Electric. Jeremy the Dark-coded Lord of Death. Auto. Neither not me. Auto. Maya. Maya. Uh, manual. Ryan the Red Avenger and Judith of the Ladies of Justice. Electric. Danny the Dude. Uh, manual. DJ Sam. <laughs> that was a tough one. DJ Sammy G. Electric. Benny and Danny Tiberius. Auto. Otto. Eric and Catherine from Yon Window Breaks. Auto. Professor Auto X. Lavender's Otto. Green. Dylan. Dylan Lavender's Blue. Blue. Lavender's green Dylan Dylan, I love you too. No constrictor. Ooh, electric. Mary <laughs> Cheap Electric. The fair and fragrant maiden Chloe. <laughs> Manual. Anthony who's cold and hates life, liberty, and the pursuit of cheese. Otto. Jiu Jitsu Jeffrey the Texas Ranger. Ooh, electric? Rachel. Midnight Ninja Ellen. Otto. Queen Congetta. Manual. Return of the Jedi. Electric. Jay of Rack and Run. Electric. Timothy the Rider at Dawn. Manual. Eric and Kate the Camp Champ Kings are warm and love bees. Auto. Matty, 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 Matt Mat Man. Mat-Man. Auto. Sweet Jamie Sunshine. Ooh, electric. Tyler the Keeper of Eternal Solar. Darkness and the Lord for her. the Keeper of Eternal Light. Electric. Cold Steel Cody. Aluminum. <laughs> I <don't know>. Auto. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite kind of didact yeah. <laughs> I'm essentially an aluminum didact <laughs> It's kind of cool That'd be a good name for a band Aluminum didact That's our band Me and Brandon's new band Sweet Presenting aluminum didact We're What gonna... kind of music Imagine there's a lot of guitars. Yeah <laughs> An aluminum didact Yeah uh, Where was I? Did I say Jack of the Librarian Barbarian? I don't know Manual John Bombadillo Diggity And Captain Tennille has made Manual Obviously Saxophone Alex. Bow, bow, bow. Uh, auto. <laughs> saxophone impression. Now, <laughs> I drive great joy from making fun of Brandon's crappy saxophone impression. Thank you. Ned. It sounded like a guitar. <laughs> Eli the Scarlet Pilgrim. Auto. The other phone. Well, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll just call him the other phone. The oh. other saxophone Alex and dubstep. Danny. Wow. I can't say that. The other saxophone, Alex, and Dubstep Denny.
1: There it is. Uh, Otto.
0: Ryan, the terror of Texas, and Eric of the cream and crimson who are stuck in the cold, please send cheese. Otto. That's it. Hey, thanks for listening, folks. Hope you enjoyed this. Bye. Patreon.com. Bye. Forward slash the booking.